Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Hello, welcome to episode one of the Trial and Medical Error podcast. My name is Brendan Lupitan, and I'm here with my partner, Greg Uniton. And uh, we are the owners of a law firm called Lupitan and Uniton and are uh, trying our best to uh, to put a podcast together because um, we love the work that we do and I uh, think there are great stories and a lot of learning lessons from the cases that we work on and try. So the podcast is mostly going to be about our experiences working up and trying a lot of medical malpractice cases or personal injury cases. And um, it's episode one and we're going to see where this goes, you know, one episode at a time. And uh, today we're going to kick off the podcast by talking about a recent trial that Greg and I tried together in uh, December of uh, 22. So about six months ago, we're going to probably make it a, it's a two-part series, talk about how the case came together, how Greg worked it up, and then I got involved, and then how the trial went and the takeaways and, and learning lessons that we got from it that, that hopefully you, the listener, might be able to you know, draw some value from. So with no further ado, Greg, why don't you tell us about the Corsetti uh, versus Trombola trial? How did it come into the office and how did you work it up? What, what's the case about generally? All right. Well, thanks. Yeah. The case came in to the office. It was actually through a networking group that I was in for a short period of time, uh, BNI. Do you remember that when I used to take off on Thursdays for of course. lunch over at Bill's down the road? But it was uh, came in through somebody in that organization who knew through the organization, Bob Corsetti. Bob is a chiropractor, also kind of a wellness guru. And Bob and I hit it off. He was very friendly, invited me to lunch one time a couple of years ago and uh, formed a nice little relationship. So regrettably, Bob's wife, Kathy, was involved in a motor vehicle accident, a rear ender on December 30th of 2019. And so that's why Bob gave me a call and we had the case coming in the firm. When he called me, it was really only about two months, I wanna say, into the course of her injury after the accident. And at that point, I mean, he certainly was representing that Kathy was off. I uh, couldn't really describe what was wrong with her necessarily beyond saying that he believed she had a concussion. And as you would expect, because Dr. Bob, as he's known, is a chiropractor, he was doing the lead. He was taking the lead on the care of Kathy. There was a chiropractor involved who wasn't Bob. He was wise enough to realize that in this context of a car accident and potential litigation, you probably shouldn't be treating your own wife. So Bob rightly referred Kathy to an associate or a friend who started providing her that chiropractic care really right off the bat. And it was just at that point, the case seemed to be, from my perspective, not so much what it ended up like a concussion case, plus you know, more to it than just that in terms of the brain, but uh, it was a soft tissue case. Okay. Uh, you know, we had some decent impact. The accident happened in Monroeville, PA. Kathy was nearing a stoplight and practically stopped when she was rear-ended by another driver at a relatively high rate of speed who was swerving in and out of traffic. Granted, this was a 
pretty bad area. You've been there, Brendan, right? Sure. This is, you have to merge onto whatever that highway is called that goes through Monroeville. And there's just not a lot of time to stop before you have to get to that stoplight. But in any event, they were really stuck on the fact that the other driver, after he pulled his vehicle off the road, slammed into Kathy a second, rear-ended her a second time after she was already out of the car, granted. But that was something that really stuck with them just to kind of demonstrate how off this driver was. And and sadly, you know, he was older and I don't know if he was had any health issues because as we'll talk about, this was a stipulated liability case and we never had a chance to depose the defendant in this case. So that's how it happened. Kathy was rear-ended. Well, let me jump in there for a second, Greg. So, you know, I think all of us go through that feeling a case comes in and given the kind of the size, the value, the consequential nature of the cases we try to focus on here, what was your first impression on the size and extent of this case? Did you think it was a, a big case or, or not so much? No, not, not so much. I mean, I had a chiropractor calling me about an injury to his wife, who he had been treating for many, many years uh, for, as a chiropractor. And I just didn't think it was really going to go too far. I thought it would be a chiropractic case, and, and that's about it. And they would tend to be limited in terms of damages. The truth of it is that, so she gets whacked from behind and doesn't get any medical care, like doesn't go to the hospital that evening, doesn't go to the hospital the next day. If I remember correctly, Greg, she didn't get any formal medical treatment for a month after the crash, right? You're right, not formal, but Dr. Bob would would argue with you on that point. She did get chiropractic care. And she had some x-rays and, you know, the x-rays didn't really show anything other than some pre-existing arthritis in her spine, but nothing major. Right. I don't mean to make light of it. And obviously we love Bob and Kathy, but that's not an easy case. A case of an older woman, you know, even though Kathy was living the life of a woman many, many years younger than her, uh, nevertheless, she was in her seventies, gets hit from behind and doesn't get any medical care other than her husband who happens to be a chiropractor providing her some sort of off the books care for a month. That's kind of a tall order as far as damages. And and what I was getting at is I feel like in our office, I didn't even hear about this case for for a long time. I never heard the name of it. I I feel like you never really told me much about it. Well, didn't I tell you when the the big turning point when Bob prescribed the hyperbaric chamber? Yes. Remember that? This is right. Yeah. That perked my ears (laughs) up. But so they get the case in, you kind of understand you're two months in and and she gets hit from behind and she has these, at least at that time, kind of vague concussion type symptoms at that point, right? Right. She does. What do you do to work the case up? I mean, do you jump right into filing suit or did you try some pre-suit or what happened? I believe I did try pre-suit because uh, that, that tends to be, for better or worse, my my MO. So I think we did try that for a little while, but then it became apparent as, as Kathy's concussion workup and treatment went along that this was a much more severe, significant injury. And regardless of what I valued the case at at that point, relatively early on, the Corsetti's had much higher expectations. So at that point, we we did file suit. And I think justifiably so, as we learned later. You know, I think that's kind of the trap sometimes that as attorneys, we all fall into is 
you sort of categorize cases sometimes right or wrong. You put them in their buckets and, oh, this is a smaller soft tissue head injury, you know, maybe a concussion type case. And, and it's not until you really understand what they were going through, because obviously we learned later what Bob in particular, Kathy was experiencing and how it was really impacting her life. And sometimes we've got other cases we're working on. We're trying to run a business and sometimes initially you don't, you can't fully understand what's happening to these people, what's going through them, how this is impacting them. We learned about it later, you know, but at the time, I think understandably, it seemed like a small case. Let me ask you this. Did the insurance company early try to make any offers to settle it on the cheap early on? No, no, they didn't. But what's interesting about this case is that initially we thought that we were dealing with a much lower policy limit than it turned out to be. We thought the policy limit was $100,000. And as Kathy started to get a little bit deeper into treatment, it seemed at least apparent to me that we'd be able to approach that. And Kathy was, okay, somewhat accepting of the fact that maybe that was as much as we would be able to recover, uh, something close to the policy limits. But then as we got a little bit deeper, and eventually this case was scheduled for trial and early 2021, I think it was supposed to be, or actually early 2022, as we got deeper and deeper into the case, it appeared that there was more coverage. We were informed by the attorney for the insurance company uh, or the defendant uh, that they had three times as much coverage as was initially revealed to us. And was that because of stacking or a different policy that hadn't attached or what happened? It was simply poor communication. Yeah. It was a mistake on their end. Quotes, poor <laughs> communication. But nevertheless, we did find out that there was a lot more coverage. And what it, it turned out to be, what, a million of coverage there was? There was 300,000. Okay. We ended up getting the full thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Gotcha. So to set the scene a little bit further, so the first formal treatment that Kathy gets after this crash, you know, she gets rear-ended and, and it was a, it was a legitimate impact. I mean, the other vehicle had a lot of damage. Hers had visible property damage. I mean, it wasn't destroyed. She was able to drive her car home, right? That evening. She did. Yeah. Yeah. So the first, again, I keep saying formal, just not being treated by her husband at home, medical care, she goes to the emergency room like a month later and they diagnose her with post-concussive syndrome, right? Right. And who does she, or, or what's the next you know, level of treatment that she rolls into at that point? So Kathy was referred by the emergency department to the UPMC concussion center which is an area where a lot of people who are, are involved in, in accidents and, and have concussions are treated. So she started seeing one of their concussion specialists, Alicia Puskar, who is a neuropsychologist by training, but specializes in concussion treatment. And I think the thing to point out with the neuropsychologists and Dr. Puskar was phenomenal and uh, we're very fond of her as a treater for other patients. We see one of our patients treating with her you know, we know they're getting great care. In these head injury cases, however, there's some concern sometimes of when your client is only being treated by a neuropsychologist. Because a neuropsychologist is a PhD, typically not an MD or a DO, right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> and my take from these concussion cases and why they can be so difficult is the diagnosis of a concussion or post-concussion is essentially subjective right? I mean, it's based off of the kind of the reported symptoms or 
how the patient scores on, again, somewhat arguably subjective testing as opposed to objective testing like blood tests or uh, radiology that could show a specific injury to the brain, that type of thing, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, I mean, there is some testing that is performed, uh, quite a bit of testing actually, in a clinic like the UPMC Concussion Clinic. But a lot of it is without the benefit of a valid baseline, right? Because the type of tests they're doing, cognitive testing and these inventories, there's many different questions. And, and these types of questions have not been asked. So what they're doing is they're going off of a baseline for a normal up to 50-year-old. And I think some of these tests, as you'll remember, because when you got into this with the defense neuropsychologist, some of these tests are based on a study population that only goes up to a certain age, right? And here we had a 78-year-old woman who was undergoing tests that were designed for somebody who's no older than 55 years old. So yes, to answer your question, there's a lot of subjectivity involved. And I think often in these, as I learned in this case, neuropsychologists have to depend on patterns. And there are certain clinical profiles for different concussions. Some follow one pathway, others follow another pathway. One may be about memory, one may be about headaches, one may be about balance and dizziness issues. It was all very interesting to learn more about because I had not had this degree of experience in a concussion case before. So take us through, so she now gets in treating with Dr. Puskar, the neuropsychologist. Do you remember what kind of treatment or therapy that Dr. Puskar was putting Kathy through for that, say, first year or so? I do, yeah. This, so this was an important, I thought, relatively important part of our case. Kathy was referred to a physical therapist who also did vestibular therapy named Michael Rakuto. And Mr. Rakuto is an excellent therapist, very well trained. He's with a group called Physical Therapy Now. And he did the vestibular therapy for Kathy. Uh, really just very intensive. She, during the course of about a year and a half, she had about 150 sessions. And they would involve a lot of different exercises designed to help her achieve balance again. Because that was, as we'll learn, is, was the primary issue, continues to be the primary issue, unfortunately, for Kathy. So it didn't end there, though, for her. You know, she's responding and kind of telling us how her symptoms are improving, some things are getting better, but some things are not going away, arguably new symptoms are developing. Where does Dr. Puskar and uh, the physical therapist take her? Like, what's her treatment journey? So, right. Kathy did much better with vestibular therapy into the course of, I believe it was the beginning of 2021. By May of 2021, Kathy was doing much better, but she wasn't 100%. Okay. And as of her most recent appointment, as of that time with Dr. Puskar, she continued to have some balance issues, which just wouldn't go away. They were persistent. And so Dr. Puskar believed there might be something else going on here, perhaps some sort of a vestibulopathy, inner ear disorder. And as it turns out, she was right. And Dr. Puskar had referred Kathy to neurootologist, basically a neurologist and an ENT packed into one named Joseph Furman in uh, early 2021. And tell us about the, what I thought was really cool diagnostic testing that Dr. Furman used to reach the diagnosis and figure out the sort of secondary and very significant injury that Kathy was actually suffering from all this time. 
Yeah, so Dr. Furman is world-renowned. I mean, that first and foremost needs to be said. So we were really lucky to have him as a treating physician. And he has a balance disorder clinic, UPMC, where they have all the bells and whistles in terms of testing. The testing involves primarily video nystography. Infrared glasses are placed on a patient. And they're goggles, really. And they measure the patient's eye movements and actually put forth data that is interpreted and and generates graphs through a computer as the patient is put in different positions. So they have these infrared goggles on and the technologist or maybe even the doctor has the patient in a room and and they will put them in different positions. They'll lower their head down with their head to the right, their body and their, they'll lower their head and their body down with their head to the right and then they'll put their body on the side. So a lot of different variations. And that's what Dr. Furman used to try to determine whether she had an abnormality of her inner ear. And as it turns out, Kathy did. So Greg, one of the, I think, recurring themes that I'll come back to in the podcast and different cases, different discussions of outcomes that we've helped our clients achieve is the hidden luck factor. And you know, in this case, I mean, there are so many different places you can point to good fortune in a sense. Obviously, it was a bad thing that happened to Mr. Corsetti, but a lot of good things happened to allow us to help her get the verdict that we did. One of them is she had really good treaters. And I think that had she wound up with a lesser neuropsychologist or a lesser vestibular physical therapist, she may never have wound up over with this world-class uh, neuro-otolaryngologist, Dr. Furman, who, and if that had not happened, she would not have been diagnosed with that inner ear injury. And that was significant for two reasons. One, she can begin to actually get the treatment that she needs for that injury, because otherwise it just wasn't going to be treated properly. And number two, it was huge for the case, because again, one of the really difficult aspects of proving these closed head injury, mild traumatic brain injury, whatever you want to call them type cases, is the sort of invisible nature of the injury. And jurors, understandably, are skeptical. They are always questioning. And when you're the one coming to court asking for money for your injuries, you've got the burden to prove your case. And people are rightfully, jurors are rightfully skeptical about the claims that are made. And that makes it difficult with concussion cases that the jury has to rely a lot on the truth of the of what's being told by the plaintiff, what's being told by their friends and lay witnesses that are very important parts of proving these cases. But the really good luck here from a trial perspective, I think, was that Dr. Furman with this video nystagmography that shows a, a legitimate computer output that a jury can see there are differences. And he can say, no, there is a definitive difference between her right ear and her left ear. That is objective evidence. And that is not something that just would coincidentally happen. Of course, the defense is going to argue that it was just coincidental and it was unrelated. But for purposes of proving that a real injury happened to this woman from this crash, in the setting of somebody that didn't get any medical, you know, formal medical care for the first month after the crash, that's a critical piece of what helped us prove this case. Yeah, that's that's right. So now she's with Dr. Furman, and did that change her treatment with Rakuto at all, or what did that do as far as helping Kathy try to recover to some extent? 
Well, it pretty much kept her on the same path. It did. There were some medications that Dr. Furman was able to offer, but it actually, he wanted her to continue vestibular therapy, really, is what he wanted. But beyond that, there wasn't that much else that, that she should be doing at the time. I do want to add to what you said, though, because during the workup of this case, obviously, we didn't have Dr. Furman in the case until the beginning of 2021. I believe his initial appointment and testing of Kathy was in April. So we have basically all of 2020 where if we go back to our frame of mind and why you didn't know about this case, it's because we didn't have this powerful testimony or this powerful evaluation, this testing. And even then, I got to tell you, there was a missing record. And Dr. Furman's office had not produced the output from this video nystography, the actual graphs that are created through this testing. And it wasn't until I was preparing Dr. Furman for his testimony that he asked, well, where are the graphs? Where's the data? And I said, well, I don't know. All I have is this two-page report from you. (laughs) And so up until that time, I was trying to go off of the template that I had read about and heard about through webinars from other attorneys who are handling these very successful concussion cases. And that template always seemed to involve some sort of positive abnormality on an MRI of the brain, whether it was a T2 hyperintensity or a series of them on a contrast MRI or a DTI, diffusion tensor imaging type of situation. And I really thought we were sunk without that. (laughs) But fortunately, not only did we have Dr. Furman's testimony to provide the objective evidence through his testing, but we actually had something the jury could see, which we all know is critically important, right? And not just his words, but something they could see in the form of these graphs that fortunately Dr. Furman found right before trial. So, I mean, now, I mean, it's like you said, luck has a lot to do with it, but now I feel like we have to create our own luck whenever we have another concussion case in the firm. We have one right now where I'm I'm thinking top of mind, we got to get this person in the hands of a doctor like Dr. Furman. And there is one who is with another health system in town here, but a doctor like that who could do the testing that he did to provide that objective evidence we need. I think it's interesting too that at least if I'm being honest and I look back on it, even as the attorney representing somebody that you know was injured, but you can't get inside of Kathy's head and we were not living with her day-to-day like Bob was. And I think we have to have a a healthy dose of skepticism. We obviously zealously advocate for our clients and support them. But look, there have been times over the course of my career when I came to find out that my client was not telling things to me straight or their symptoms legitimately did not match up with the medical findings and so forth. And I think getting that information when you asked me to get involved in the case and and I'm looking at this case and how are we going to prove this case and how are we going to demonstrate that this woman was legitimately and significantly injured from this crash, having objective information, medical objective proof that she suffered a real injury helped me, you know, helped me really believe in the case. Because I think had you brought me into the case and we don't have the, you know, that video nystagmography proof. I'm going to say, look, we're going to do the best we can. We're going to polarize the case. We're going to get great lay witnesses to try to prove it and so forth. And I suspect we likely would have still won because Kathy had such a great story to tell. However, 
there's going to be more jurors that are going to be skeptical in there. And in turn, if there's more skeptical jurors, I think even though that's more from a causation component, that's going to drag down the verdict if you don't have that objective evidence. And maybe in some cases you don't win because they just, they don't buy it for some reason, or that could certainly be the case in a lot. So I think we had a very a highly credible and impressive woman that would likely have carried the day without Dr. Furman's testing. But I still think that when people come and talk to us about getting a good verdict in a close head injury case, if I'm looking at these cases in the future and I'm talking to the people, I'm saying, try your best to find something objective out there to prove there was something that the jury can see and feel. So I want to throw a question out to you, Brendan. So when you first got involved in this case, it was relatively close to the time of trial. And I had, at that point, formed my own impression of the clients, right? You know, we had been together in this case for a long time, and we had a lot of talks about money. And I felt like I may have been a little bit jaded, but tell me, what was your first impression of our clients when you met? It took a little bit. So I think the backstory was that, understandably, you saw the case as a little bit more valuable than what was going to be offered, which I think at the time was maybe fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000, but you're not seeing this as uh, a many hundreds of thousands value type case. And the clients, they're the ones living through this. They believed in the case. They believed that this was a, a really significant injury. It meant a lot to them. And um, they were committing, committed to holding out, to go to trial, to believe in a jury is going to you know, recognize the true impact that this has had on them. So because there was that a little bit of a understandable difference in take on value at that time, I remember you asked me, you come and talk to this family and give me your impressions and maybe you can get involved and try the case. And I'm like, of course. So I think we did a Zoom with them. And I think what really swung me as far as wanting to try that case was Kathy's background. She was an amazing, is, is an amazing woman. I mean, she was a this serial entrepreneur throughout, uh, I think the seventies, eighties and nineties, she was in the construction industry. She was sometimes the only woman on these construction sites. She, you know, founded, uh, what Royal flush porta potties and these construction sign companies. And I mean, really impressive person and what she had done. And then was talking about how she retired and then had come out of retirement to help a friend sort of market and promote and grow their dental practice. And I could just kind of see who this woman was and talking with her. I love Bob as well, but Bob wasn't injured. I mean, he was the collaterally injured because of what happened to his wife. But there was just something about talking with Kathy in that meeting. And I think sometimes it's just fresh eyes. I've been there like you have, you work the case up and you start to focus on some of the warts or the problems of the case and, and you lose sight of the big picture or other aspects of the case. And so I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. And I just remember that she seemed like a really special person, somebody that I said, look, we should definitely go try this case. They're, they seem to be game for it. This is important to them. A settlement that 75000 or $100,000 isn't going to make much of a difference to them. I mean, they're pretty well-off people. And it was more about the principle of it, that the impact that this had, what's been, what was taken from her was much more valuable to them. And I think it was symbolic that they go to trial. And I'll do a little side point too. I think one of the, again, you need a lot of luck to win a trial or get a great outcome in a verdict. But there's lots of different pieces that go into cases and cases that I've tried and been successful in. I think one piece of the the success formula 
is having a plaintiff that is not only likable and is worthy, but is willing to work hard, okay? That they're willing to do what's necessary to work on and take constructive criticism on how best to tell their story and the impact of it, which of the anecdotes and the ways they describe their injuries we think are going to be most effective that they can incorporate that. But people that are willing to do the time to practice their testimony, to understand how their testimony and the entire case fits together, that's going to make a big difference. Because on the other hand, you get sometimes, unfortunately, people that are not really wanting to work hard and they find the preparation necessary for trial to be onerous and, and unnecessary. And that is, in my opinion, oftentimes a, a recipe for a loss when you get people that, well, you're the lawyer, you should just do it all. And they don't want to do the work themselves. And I could tell just from her background and, and just in talking with Bob and Kathy that, that they not only were worthy, not only had a great story to tell, but were going to work hard to, uh, to do the best they could at trial. So those are the kind of people that uh, you know, makes it easier to, to go to trial with. As always, my friend, when you came into this case, you were the turning point and, and you were the difference maker by the end. And I say you were the turning point because I had just this, like I said, jaded perspective on my clients, unfortunately. And, and I think it was in part because she was so bright and so accomplished and spoke so well. Because of those things, especially the fact that she spoke so well, I had a hard time believing the severity of her injuries, believing in it. And, and it's, it's ironic because you don't need to, to depend. As we've always discussed, we don't want to depend on our clients to prove their injuries, right? When we put our client on the stand, it's going to be very brief. We, were, we depend on our before and after witnesses for that, our lay witnesses. And... I had focused for way too long because we were always having discussions about her health and her progress and her condition and the value of the case. I had focused on the way Kathy talked about her injuries. And I thought she just spoke too well, like I said. So I think that that really messed with my mind in the way I had my perspective on the case. And I didn't believe in my clients well enough. And I think the big takeaway that you should have here is if you, you have clients and you're having a hard time believing their own, their story, you really need to check yourself first, right? And, and ask yourself, am I biased for some reason? Is it just the way our relationship has developed in terms of this case and, and negotiations that has made it difficult for me to believe in my clients? And if so, if, if that's it, and if you still have doubts, you need to bring in somebody else in your firm if you can, somebody you can rely on. Or sometimes somebody outside of your firm. You know what I mean? Right, but yeah. but get somebody with fresh eyes. Look, I mean, we've all been there. And I think your concerns are super legitimate, though. You think about it. I mean, when I met her, she was incredibly articulate, very well-spoken. And I think because of the type of person that she was, which was that never gives up, always pushes through things, was going to accomplish what she set her mind to when she's speaking with us, when she's speaking with anybody, she's putting on a more of a front. Mm-hmm than what's really going on with her. But your concerns were legitimate in the sense that you have to think about what is a jury going to think about this person? And she's going to walk into court just fine. She looks like a million bucks, you know, period. And it's certainly for her age. She's very well-spoken. And yeah, how can you not worry that a jury's going to say, I mean, this person's fine. They're not hurt. And they got bumped into the, in the back and let's give them $15,000 and call it a day. I think I agree with you. It's always good to check yourself and 
get a second take on things and uh, it worked out well here. I think it worked out really well that I wasn't involved in the case until the end to come in and have just kind of a sort of a different view of it. And I think that also helped. I mean, and this goes both ways. And, and also, I think sometimes talk about your case with fellow friends and attorneys outside of it or, or bring them in to co-counsel with you because they may just bring a different view to the case. And I think one of the things, not to you know, pat myself on the back, but <laughs> that I saw was how her biggest harm, the kind of the true theme, I think what really drove the verdict was her unique injury was not so much the physical aspects of things. It wasn't so much the dizziness and the actual symptomatic injuries that she was experiencing. It was the consequence of the injury, which was her inability to keep doing that job as the marketing professional and head of marketing for this dental company, that once you started digging into that and understanding how much love and joy and passion she took in that job, and then she couldn't do it anymore because of this, because it sapped her energy and it sapped her you know, ability to remain sharp and be outgoing. And, you know, they described her as the energizer bunny. And then you start to think about, well, you know, what are the things that I love to do in my life and what if I couldn't do them? And abruptly, I'm still okay. I can live my life, but I can't do that thing that I really love that really got me going, got me out of bed in the morning and so forth. And then you start to understand like, man, this, this really was a very significant injury on this person. And again, it's unique. That's the unique aspect of Kathy's injury in that case that I think I was able to kind of latch onto, or it just struck me. I, mm -hmm. To this day, I just remember being bowled over when she tells me in that first call that she was the founder of, you know, <laughs> Royal Flesh Porta-Potties or, or whatever the, the porta potty company was. I don't know why I was so fixated on Porta-Potties, but yeah. That's definitely my favorite brand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, forever, forever. <laughs> but I just could see that this was a really unique woman with a unique injury and way that it impacted her life. You know, I think to your point, Greg, about checking yourself, I think one thing, and it sounds so corny sometimes, but when you actually confront people with it, it's quite powerful. And I think is something that you need to, and I'll talk about how we weave this into our actual trial. but. When you think about an injury, and because I think we can get jaded at times, we see sometimes just horrific, horrific injuries, paralysis, burns, and cases where people just had surgery after surgery after surgery. And then you see other types of injuries in comparison or in contrast, they don't seem as terrible. Mm -hmm. But if you really force yourself to put yourself in that person's shoes or say, what if that was to happen to me and my evil man argument, which I'm sure we'll talk about it in other podcasts, the gist of it is how much money would you take if you had the choice to have that happen to you? And I think that's kind of, for me, always the question you have to apply to these cases on the way you think of the damages for your client. Okay. Because if you just think about it in comparison to other cases, you just get into these kind of, I don't know, it's just not fair. It's not reasonable. Now you have to do that to some extent in settlements and so forth, but to really understand if you're going to go to trial and you're going to get behind your person's injuries, you have to, I think, think of it that way. If this were to happen to me and I was given a choice of, Hey, we're going to do this to you. We're going to shake your brain up. We're going to injure your right vestibular complex of your ears. So you have chronic dizziness. You're not as sharp as you used to be. You're more run down. How much money would you take for that? And when you think of it in, in those terms, the value of the case inevitably always goes way up in your mind. So just a little side thing to think about. That's well said and great points. 
on that topic, there was a mediation. And, and can you just talk a little bit about, if, if you're familiar, I know you are, about how much the other side, the defense wanted Mr. and Mrs. Corsetti to take for her life-changing situation. Yeah. So I got involved after the mediation, but the number never changed after that point. So it was, if I if I'm correct, it was $75,000 and that was it. And the adjuster was resolute and he made a mistake, but I'll give him credit for the fact that he kept his word and never offered a penny more than that $75,000. And again, I think if you go back and you think about what I was just talking about, nobody, no way in heck would Kathy Crisetti ever have taken $75,000 for what happened to her. And hers was a real situation. There was, there's no comparative fault. There's no partial responsibility on her part. I mean, she's sitting there stopped at a light, minding her own business, trying to drive home from work to get home to see her husband. And she just gets crushed from behind by somebody that just wasn't paying attention. So she had no choice in the matter. I mean, I would say maybe she probably wouldn't even have taken what we got in the verdict for what happened to her. At least it was somewhat fair and, and thought through by the jury compared to what this insurance company was just saying that they thought was fair. But I, again, I think there's always luck involved. And this is a perfect example that the insurance company was comparing this type of case to other types of cases where people got hit from behind and they had a minor head injury and they had always settled those cases for at most 75 and they just shut it down. And they, they didn't think any further through that. They didn't think as the evidence was coming in through trial, oh boy, you know, maybe the value of this case is higher than this and readjust because there is no doubt in my mind that had they come up not that much higher, that the court studies may have taken something that was maybe double that, maybe 150, maybe 200. They just got to that level then the Corsettis might take it because again, there were problems on the case, you know, with the case, with the damages, with the timing of how the injuries develop, where one could argue that you could lose or get a lesser verdict. And, and I need to really hand it to, uh, to Kathy and Bob because they really felt betrayed throughout the course of this litigation by the, the defense insurance company. Kathy actually had a bad experience during her time as a CEO with the same insurance company, believe it or not. And it was no different in this case. So she wasn't terribly surprised, but further maddened for sure by the way they had just lowballed her throughout. And as usual, you're correct. I, now that my mind has been joggled a little bit more, I do remember that initially we knew there was a $300,000 policy. I think Kathy wanted the full policy limits initially for as long as we knew those to be the policy limits. But then close to the time of trial, you're right, we did realize and learn it was a million dollars in coverage. So that may have actually played a little bit of a, a part in, in why there was such a low offer because the insurance company thought, they, well, we could roll the dice. We got a pretty big buffer here. Right. Yeah. There, there's not going to be in their mind, rightfully so, much risk of an excess as opposed to if it had been 300, then we would have been able to put more pressure on them. Though we didn't really have uh, economics to put on the board, which are typically going to be the factors that the carriers are going to look at as far as whether there's a higher likelihood of, uh, of an excess verdict or not. But in any case, there was a million. And again, that's, again, more luck to the, uh, to the reason why we got to try this case. And, and that's what ultimately wound up happening. I remember we had that decision. The, the Corsettis were resolute that they were not taking anything close to 75,000. The adjuster was resolute that he was not offering more than that amount of money. 
And we were absolutely heading to trial and knowing we were going to go to verdict on this case, which again is always my preference. I hate those situations where there's a lot of money or maybe a question of more money on the table and maybe it's still going to settle kind of thing. From Jump Street, we pretty much knew we were going to take a verdict on the case. And I think that makes preparation a lot easier. And we're getting towards, I think, the end of this episode as far as uh, part one of the Corsetti trial, but I want to just kind of wrap up with where things happen. So in trial, there's kind of what I'll call official trial when you're in court, there's a jury there and so forth. And then a lot of cases, there's the trial actually begins before that with uh, pre-recorded depositions of certain witnesses. And in this particular case, the defense had had Kathy examined by a neuropsychologist of their own, you know, quote, independently hired uh, named Glenn Getz. And Greg, if you can recall, what was the gist of what Getz's opinions were after having evaluated Kathy and what he was did testify to? So the gist of Dr. Getz's opinions it focused a little bit about on really a lot about just creating a finite end to Kathy's concussion symptoms. Didn't focus at all on the vestibular component to her injuries, but he picked this point in time, which was in November of 21, when Kathy was at Target, one of her first ventures out on her own to do some shopping because typically Bob would need to drive her all over the place. She was in Target. And as soon as the lights in Target hit her, she started feeling dizzy, but wanted to get the coffee maker that she was there to get, found the coffee maker at the bottom shelf in the aisle, stooped down like a a catcher stoops down to catch a ball, and she lost her balance and fell on her butt. And that was recorded. Kathy told Dr. Puskar that because it did happen to aggravate her symptoms. This was just an odd episode where she had this flare-up of dizziness after a course of time where she felt like she was doing better. And Dr. Getz, the neuropsychologist for the defense, latched on to this fall, if you call it that. I, I wouldn't really call it a fall, but that's what the defense in these cases do. You know, They try to find some subsequent injury, like a slip and fall, that causes a, some sort of new injury. That was really quite a bit of the gist of his defense, as well as saying that all of her testing was really normal. And if I remember correctly, I think he attributed a lot of her symptoms to simply anxiety. Right. And again, I think they made a mistake that they didn't get a neurologist of their own to counter Dr. Furman's testimony and the objective evidence that we had in the case. And I remember going to the the library where they scheduled (laughs) Dr. Getz's deposition for use of trial and taking him to task on the fact that he is not a neurologist. He is a neuropsychologist. And so he had no qualifications. And he admitted that that he could not assail a single opinion of Dr. Furman, had nothing to counter any of that. And so he couldn't disagree that she had this vestibular injury and that he had to agree that if Dr. Furman said that she was having all these symptoms that were caused by an injury to her inner ear due to the crash, he couldn't uh, disagree with that. And I think that was very damaging to their defense of trying to blunt uh, Kathy's injuries. On the other hand, again, if we didn't have Herman, if we didn't have that objective evidence in the case, I think it's a much tougher case. Because even though I think we both felt that Dr. Getz's opinions, for the most part, of what he was trying to attribute some of her ongoing 
closed head injury issues too was pretty bogus and not supported by his own writings. And we confronted him with his own articles on closed head injuries and so forth, much of which he had written things that were fully supportive of our case. But if you take Furman out of the case and you just have Dr. Puskar versus Dr. Getz, now I think there's a lot more questions that could get raised in a juror's heads about what was the testing that she did legitimate? Is this subjective? Is this subject to exaggeration or manipulation by Kathy to make it look like she's more injured than she was? It's a tougher case. It just is. We had a world-class uh, neurologist who was not opposed. He was unopposed in the case. And there's no doubt that that is going to weigh in Kathy's favor for winning and, and getting a good verdict. Yeah. And I mean, on that point, you know, to interrupt, but, you know, in any case, I really feel like if, if you have the, the means and the resources and you could find a specialist out there for your specific injury, right? Of course, we didn't know in Kathy's case that she had even had this injury until the specialist was consulted by Dr. Puskar. So we were fortunate, like you said, but when you know that there's a diagnosis out there and you can't necessarily rely on your treater, you should try somebody who is the world leader on this particular condition like Dr. Furman is. Agreed. Yeah. Why can't we get that in every case? Mm -hmm. So I'll just talk briefly about cross-examining a neuropsychologist like I did with Dr. Getz in this case. So Greg, you've tried a, a lot of cases with me and you know that sometimes I get kind of riled up and can sometimes go over the top. And probably one of my biggest issues I have to work with and I'm trying to focus on is trying to maintain my emotions, not let my emotions get out in front of where the jury most likely is, not to get more ticked off or, or more angry than maybe where the jury is. And if anything, being dialing it back so that the jury is more likely to get fed up with what they're hearing. And I'm not sort of stealing their emotional reaction to the situation. I told you recently from another trial, uh, more recently we tried, there's this quote that from a, a guy, Kevin Kelly, who uh, was the founder of Wired Magazine, uh, read, he said, whenever you have a choice between being right or being kind, be kind. No exceptions. Don't confuse kindness with weakness. And you know, I think that idea applies in almost all instances when you are taking adverse depositions or testimony at trial when you're cross-examining people. If you're going to err on one side or the other, err on being kind to that witness, trying to imagine what they're going through and being polite as much as you can, but also gauging the situation. And I think that with Dr. Getz, he was relatively straightforward. I mean, he conceded a lot of her injury in his report. And so when you see that, I can tell myself, okay, I don't need to go in and try to destroy this person's witnesses, what his opinions are. I need to make a handful of points here. Number one point was he can't disagree with Dr. Furman, and he absolutely agreed with that. And so there's had to concede that what Dr. Furman was saying was essentially right. You know, he had no reason to disagree with it. Number two, we reconfirmed and underscored his opinions that corroborated Kathy's injuries, use his testimony to help our case, to bolster our credibility of the claims being made. And then regarding the opinions that differed, that we disagreed with reasonably and as politely as I could, although there were times I think I got a little righteously indignant with some of the testimony or opinions that he provided, but confronting him with 
his own materials that were opposite of that and trying to point out aspects of, of his opinions that you know just really weren't supported by anything other than his own personal take on things. And of course, politely pointing out that while he is billing himself as a quote, independent expert, that he's not independent. He, you know, he was not appointed by the court. He was not hired by us. He was not one of Kathy's treating doctors that he was hired and is being paid for by the defense. And you don't have to go crazy with that. Okay. And, and I certainly have over the course of my career and I've overdone it. And probably recently in another trial overdid it with focusing on the amount of money that this expert's being paid. Uh, you have to walk that fine line, but I think it is necessary in these situations to point it out, especially when you have a treating doctor who saw this patient before there was really any specter or anticipation of litigation or anything like that, and that person's opinions about what's going on with this patient versus the hired witness on the other side. And just making that contrast and just making sure the jury gets it, this person is not independent. They are being hired to give these opinions by the defense. And I think, not to self-congratulate myself, but I was very happy with how that examination went of Dr. Getz in that case. I thought it was, it was helpful to us, if anything. Oh, it, it set the tone, I think. After that cross-examination, I really felt emboldened and, and like things were going to go in the right direction. Part of the reason for that is just the contrast between your examination and the direct examination. The direct examination was very loose. I mean, it was relatively well organized, but it just it didn't really flow very well, in my opinion. Unfortunately for the doctor, he was a little off that day as well. He was getting ready for a vacation. He was a little under the weather too, and he even arrived late. So just again, luck comes into play. But the contrast was that your cross examination was extremely tight and well organized. And you got it all in. It couldn't have been much more than a 15, 20 minute cross examination from what I remember. And you mentioned that sometimes you get a little carried away, perhaps. I've seen that, yeah, but it wasn't in this cross examination carried away. Up until the very end, you, there was one little question you just couldn't help yourself but asking, well, what was that, if you remember? I can't remember. Remind me. I now I'm now, now I'm intrigued. What? What? Uh, you don't what, remember this? Oh, no. Wow. What, what did I say? The last question you were, I think, quoting from Dr. Furman's expert report, something to the effect of, in Dr. Furman's opinion, Kathy's dizziness and imbalance disorder is likely to continue for the rest of her life. Isn't that correct, Doctor? He's, yes. Is that something that you would want to live with for the rest of your life? <laughs> hey, I love that question. I think that was a great, and he agreed and, and his reaction was terrific. He, he was like, no, I would not. And I thought that was, so I, I think personally that was a, that was a kick butt question, which I, I would ask again in the right circumstance. But one other point is that Dr. Getz, again, you have to size up who your opponent is. And he is a generally very pleasant guy. He's sort of soft-spoken. He's, um, I don't want to say sweet, but He's not a jerk. He's not aggressive. And I think that if I had been overly aggressive or yeah, more intense, it wouldn't have come off well. So I really had to tell myself, look, th this guy, he's pretty easygoing. And so I have to be as easygoing as I can possibly be under these circumstances. And I, you know, I think as best I could, I was. And I think that exam came off well and helped the case, if anything. 
Well, that last question that you asked, Dr. Getz, is this something that you'd want to deal with for the rest of your life, would come back later on in the trial in another deposition recorded for use at uh, trial. And we'll get into that, I guess, in the next episode. Yeah. So yeah, that'll wrap up episode number one. Congratulations to both of us for our flagship or, or first podcast in the books. I am, as much as I can remember and think to do so, going to try to end our podcast with a, a little trial tip or trial concept that, that people can think about incorporating in their case. I think I, I look at all the trial guide books and the seminars I go to and talking with different you know, friends of ours and the, all the trial information that we're inundated with and other great podcasts as sort of a, um, like a buffet. And I take the stuff that resonates with me, that looks yummy to me, and I use that and I don't take the rest. And I think like anything, that, that's how we use this information. And so the tips or suggestions that I give, you know, use that, was it caveat emptor or use it if it resonates with you. But my other little piece before I get into this is any piece of advice, any argument technique that you learn about or hear about, don't just use it blindly. Don't just throw it in there because somebody else was doing it because Keith Mitnick said to do it or you know Brian Panish or David Ball or Rick Friedman said this is how they did it in their transcript. You have to, if you like something, you have to think through it. You have to talk through it. You have to say it out loud and internalize it and make it your own. It has to, you have to fully understand like why are you saying it? What does it mean so that you can say it in your own words, because otherwise it's just going to sound artificial and phony, at least in my opinion. So the one little tip I'll give that I've started doing recently in certain cases is when I'm talking about damages in opening statement, I, when you're talking about pain and suffering and why is the jury having to appraise loss, okay? And, and you always talk about it as a loss, what was taken away because that's much more powerful than this idea of like what they're going to get. It's not about what they're going to get. It's what was taken away. But literally in opening, a lot of times what I say now is as you think about this, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, and you think about how much money would be fair to make up for what was taken away, think about if Mr. or Mrs. Plaintiff knew and had a choice of what was about to happen to them being the injuries in your case. And they were normal. This was before everything happens. And they are presented with, this is your future, okay? This terrible injury, this horrible medical care, this way your life is being impacted. How much money would you take for that, okay? And I literally am saying that in openings now as how to help the jury think about why they give money and what they're giving the money for and what the purpose of it's for. It's not jackpot justice. It's not a lottery, okay? It's because this person, hopefully it's not too much of a comparative fault case, but it's because this person didn't have a choice. <laughs> and so if they did, imagine they did have a choice, how much money would they take? That's a way to think about voting for an amount of money for pain and suffering damages. So it feels right to me. I like it. I did it in the opening of Corsetti. And uh, if it feels right to you, I say, go ahead, use it. It's a great way to, to prime their minds for awarding damages. I think it's a great tip. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that uh, that wraps up um, episode one. In episode two, we will talk about the actual trial and outcome of the Corsetti case. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you in episode two. Thanks, all. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal in catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.